as you see here, Second Corinthians chapter 11, we should be finishing it up by the end of the year. We'll be starting very quickly in Gen uh, Galatians, Galatians chapter 1. And we're going to keep going through until the Lord leads us. Uh, otherwise, we will talk a few times on, on certain events that take place in the church or in the nation. We'll talk, uh, of course, about our holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we'll, we'll interject uh, what God is doing in those, in those, in those holidays. <clears throat> but in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as you re read with me, we, we know that Paul has already been discussing and talking to the people in Corinth about their influence of people within the church. The church is really giving bad, uh, Paul a bad name. The church, the people in Corinth, the, the Judaizers, the those that are trying to stir up trouble, have been trying to stir up trouble for a long time now. Excuse me, for a long time now. If you remember in 1 Corinthians, there were divisions. There was sexual immorality. That was the misuse of the Lord's table. Uh, they, were, they were drinking and getting drunk and, and just being all kinds of all kinds of stuff that was going on within in the church. Now, he's not talking about the people. He's talking about the church, how the, how the culture has influenced the church. And today we see a lot of that in the, how the culture has influenced the church. And, and so what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to correct the Corinthians because he says, you know, I, I, I want you to be in, in, the, in a right relationship with God, your father. He, he owns you. He, number one, he, he created you. Number two, he died for you. In the form of Jesus Christ, he gave himself up because it's something that you couldn't do and you, you owe him your life. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about all the stuff that goes on. And in 2 Corinthians, this is more of a personal letter. It is known as we started out by saying that, that when we first started 2 Corinthians, it's, it's almost a, a, a exposing himself in a sense to his emotion and his, his life. And, and, and we get to know Paul as a human being in 2 Corinthians, and we have been. And, and he's been battling with these people, and, and he's talking about how they try to steer the, the church in a different direction. And Paul's saying, look... You got to hold on to what I taught you. You got to hold on to the faith. You got to hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he says, that's the gospel that I taught you. That's the gospel that I shared with you. And you got to hold on to that. And in chapter 11, he says this, which is really interesting on in how he puts this. In verses 1 through 6, and I'm just going to be the first six verses, it says this, I, I wish you would bear me a little foolishness. Paul says, you know, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to go out on a limb here. I just, just kind of bear with me because I want you to know something. And this is not just a joke. This is not something that I'm trying to, you know, make you feel guilty with. This is how I truly feel. But please understand, remember in Corinth, the people were Gentiles. They didn't really know a whole lot about the Jewish law. And Paul taught them a lot about the Jewish law and everything else that was going on along that. And he says this. Do bear with me, number two, verse two, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted and you put up with it readily enough, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all 
things. Father in heaven, I pray that you lead us this morning through this portion of scriptures. You help us to understand what Paul is trying to get across here. And I thank you, Father, that this word has been preserved just for us. It is preserved up to this point so that we can look at, examine, pull out the eternal truths and apply them to our life today. So help us to see it in its context, apply it to our life, that we may grow closer and in more devotion to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I tried to get some notes out. Uh, something happened. We couldn't get our equipment to run, but you can take notes if you'd like. I think we have the notes up here. But in 1 Corinthians 11, as I said, first thing that Paul says, you know, I, I want you to just bear with me. I'm going to share this with you. But I feel, he says, in verse 2, a divine jealousy for you. A divine jealousy. This divine jealousy, this jealousy that is divine. And when you think about jealousy, jealousy seems to be a negative connotation. But did you know that God, his name is Jealous? Did you know that God is a jealous God? Did you know that God is the God that, that would proclaim himself to be a jealous God? As a matter of fact, he even said in his commandments, says, don't, don't have any other gods before me, for I am a jealous God. And he says later on in Deuteronomy, you know, that, that if you continue to go after, you continue to whore after the other gods in, this, in these nations, that I will see to it that, that my jealousy will just be unleashed on you. God desires for you to be devoted to one person, and that's God himself. He says, I want all your attention. I want all that you have. I want all that you are focused on me. When the people of Jesus' day were trying to trick Jesus up, and they're trying to figure out which commandment was the greatest. There was an argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and there was an argument between the Herodians and, and everybody else saying, this is the greatest commandment. No, this is the greatest commandment. No, this is the greatest commandment. So they threw it at Jesus, and, and they said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? So well, I'll tell you what the greatest commandment is. And what did he say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with everything that you've got. And the second commandment, he says, is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Full devotion to God is not optional. Full devotion to God is essential. God never created a human being so that it can do whatever it wants. God says, I am so jealous for you. Paul says, I, I, I have this divine jealousy for you. Says, you know, this, this divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you, he says, to one husband to present you as a pure virgin in Christ. Now, I don't know if you can just imagine yourself and all the work that a pastor does as Paul is preaching and teaching and showing and loving and caring and exhorting and disciplining and sometimes even excommunicating and, and helping the church come to know who Jesus Christ is. And he's done everything he could to show them who, who this love, who this God is that has been pursuing them, who Jesus Christ is that has pursued them. Jesus gave us a, a very good example of the lost coin, uh, of the, the lost sheep, and of the, the lost son. And the lost coin, you know, there's the, 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 the lost sheep, there's 99 that the shepherd counted, and one of them was missing. He pursued and looked after that sheep. And he went after that, that, that sheep that was lost, that one, putting all 99 apart. And do you know that this is the only time in Scripture that the angels in heaven rejoice is when one person that was lost is found. This, the woman that lost one of her coins, she turned her house inside out. 
And she, she turned it inside out and she goes and she searches for that one. And heaven rejoices. The most interesting story is, of course, the, the story of the prodigal son. You may have heard it. As a matter of fact, most people kind of equate the word prodigal with uh, being lost or, you know, oh, there he's come back. You know, he was in hiding. But the word prodigal really is a, an, an archaic word that means spent or has wasted his life, has wasted his finances, has wasted everything that he has been given, and he's just been very wasteful. Matter of fact, I don't know if you guys remember that song by... Freddie Fender, wasted days and wasted. You can almost substitute that word for prodigal days and prodigal nights. That's what this guy was. He went and he took everything. He wasted it. It came, came to his senses. And he says, you know, I'm going to go back to my father's house. But the slaves, the servants have better than I have out here. I'm with the pigs, slopping pig meat and food, and I'm getting ready to eat this stuff. And, you know, I'm just going to go back and I'm going to tell my father, you know, God, Father, please forgive me. I have sinned against heaven and against you. Please make me one of your servants. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is showing this picture, this, is giving these illustrations, these three parables, and he's giving them to the people in front of the Pharisees, in front of those religious leaders. And he's trying to share something with these people. Look, God is searching, not you. You think you're righteous. You think you're good. God is searching for those that know they're not good. Like this prodigal son. And the Bible tells us that as the son is coming and he's rehearsing his lines and the father sees him and the father runs to the son. The son could barely get the words out, didn't even finish the sentence, and the father has fully restored him. Ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, a cloak over him, and he has a fatted calf celebration. It's interesting because the story kind of ends a little bit you know, later with the celebration, and the son comes in from all work, the older son. And the older son, as he's hearing all this noise, he says, well, what's all the commotion? And one of the slaves says, one of the servants says, well, your son, your brother, the, the kid that would took off, you know, their product. Yeah, he went out and wasted everything and came back. He goes, what? And they go, out, they go in and tell the father that your oldest son is outside. And the son, you know, you have to get a really good, accurate picture of this. If you turn with me to, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And in Luke 15, you'll see that in, um, I'm going to start in verse 30. Maybe a little bit further up. In verse 25. Luke 15, 25, the third parable in chapter 15 that Jesus is trying to get across to show the, the Pharisees. If you kind of go back a little bit to uh, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. You know, here's the, the bad people, people like you and I. The worthless, those that the Pharisees, the pastors, the religious leaders that day would not even give the time of day. And they were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them? And he tells these three parables. And then he goes, and then he tells the story of the prodigal son. And then in verse 25, it says, Now this, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed a fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But, what does it say? He was angry. 
and refused to go in, the father came out and entreated him and entreated him. He begged him. He, he, he entreated him, but, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son, didn't even call him a brother. This is important right here. The word son there is the word huyas, which huyas is the son of God. Huyas, uh, huyas dios is the son of God. Huyas, this huyas, this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Now, how did he know that? Well, he's just making all kinds of accusations. You killed a fatted calf for him. Now, just this is what I want you to look at right here very quickly. If, if you can just imagine the father entreating him, son. And then the, the son is just like, you know, pointing his finger at the father. You know, all these years I have served you. But, but when this, this, and you can just sense and see the anger in his veins and the facial expressions that he has towards the father. And he's telling him, this is, this, this is what's happening? Really? After all I've done for you? Really, this is what's going to happen? And then he says, but when this son of yours, and then in verse 31, and he said to him, son. Now, I want you to circle that word, son. That word son in Greek is technon. Technon, another word for son, but it means more like mihito, child. Technon, come on. You, you, know, you, you know that I love you. I mean, after all I've done and showed you and expressed to you, Technon, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. You can have fatted calf anytime you want. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive, and he was lost and is found. Now, something interesting really happens here, guys. You got to look at this. Because all of a sudden, like in a theater, as the play is going on, you can almost see the son and the father, and then the lights go off, the curtain goes down. What happened? That's it? And that's the last picture that people have in their mind. Because then Jesus goes on and he tells them, you know, about the parable of the dishonest manager, and he tells them more parables, and it's like, okay, what happened? You know, I'd like to think that possibly what happened, you know, right after this is after the father just intrigued the technon, the child. Mijo, please. Okay, Dad, you're right. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I, I, I shouldn't have blown up like that. You're right. I mean, everything, I, everything you have is mine. And, you know, let's make this a great celebration. I'll go in and we'll celebrate. Let me wash up and we'll all join together. Big old hug. Okay, Mijo, I forgive you. But that really isn't the ending. As I mentioned earlier, this is a story about the Pharisees. And the true ending, and you're not going to like it, but the true ending, the real ending, that actually played out, because Jesus kind of gave that to him, says, look, this is where you are at. How are you going to end this story? How is your story going to end? And the story really ended like this. The son, furious beyond anything and rage, picked up a piece of lumber and clubbed his father to death. Remember, Jesus came 
to save those who were lost. The Pharisees would not accept him. And they took him and they beat him and they pulverized him and hung him on a cross and killed the Son of God. That's the actual ending, which actually played out much later. And when Jesus is trying to get across to them, look, you can, you can see the difference. Those that are mine, they're going to come back. And those that aren't, this is what you're going to do. I told you you weren't going to like it. But the story ends and begins at the cross. And, and so when Paul has shared this with the people in Corinth, he's saying to them, Jesus died on a cross for your sins. And so... First and foremost, God knows me. He says, I have this divine jealousy for you. And in the Jewish time set, there were two important people, a friend of the bridegroom, a friend of the bride. And they were, their responsibility was to make sure that the bride stayed pure. And there was this, the, the three parts in the marriage was the betrothal, the engagement, and the marriage itself. The betrothal could last almost a year or even from birth. And they were married on paper, but it didn't have any, any sexual relations. It wasn't consummated until after the marriage. And so Jesus is saying, look, I betrothed you. You're promised. There's been a document signed. You have been delivered to God, to Jesus Christ. And you are his bride. Church, you are his bride. And I cannot, for the life of me, understand why me as a pastor would allow you. And you might say, well, you got no right. I said, I, I, you know what? I need to have. To see the sin that just goes on in the life of a Christian. And then just be okay with it. Well, you know, they went ahead and they legalized homosexuality. As a matter of fact, some church members even have pastors that are homosexual. You, you know, abortion, yeah, it's a choice. Beloved, it's a, it's a sin. It is, it is a sin to not be totally devoted to God. And when we understand that, then we can start to understand the grace of God. And he says, look, I betrothed you. But, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. If you remember when we were talking about this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when we, when we mentioned that, um, that we, we do not war with the, the weapons of this world, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy and uh, strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to be obedient to Christ. This is back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. And when we went through that, I said, this is the spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare isn't fighting against demons. Spiritual warfare is the demons are using the thoughts and ideas of people's minds to captivate you, to lead you astray. Because more than anything, Satan does not want you to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not what he wants you to hear. He wants you to stay as far away from the gospel. You can go to church. You can claim it and name it and whatever you can. You can ask God to bless you. And, and you know what? We'll send some blessings your way, make it look like God did something. And we will give you all the desires of your heart. But stay away from the gospel. And some people are saying, well, I thought that's what we do. I thought the gospel was, you know, what we do every day. You, you know, some people call the gospel giving a, a glass of water to, to a, a, a person that's thirsty, or giving food to the homeless or clothing. That's the gospel. When we talk about how to raise children, how to fix our finances, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, that's not the gospel. I mean, all those things are great. 
Please, don't get me wrong. We need to continue to do those things and minister. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is very clear. And you know what? It is so clear that it has been muddied in the past century that most people don't even know what the gospel is anymore. The gospel of Jesus Christ. God desires for me to know the gospel. In 2 Corinthians, he says this, for, uh, verse 4 and on, he says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And the gospel message has been diluted. We put up with other things that sound good. You know, if it makes me feel good, it must be the gospel. And I leave here in my same sin, destined to go to hell. Without actually ever hearing or knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And before you can know the gospel, which by the way comes from the Greek word evangelion. Evangelion means good news. Glad tidings. Great things that that are to come. Let me share with you, and this is what the heralds would do. Evangelion, evangelion, great glad tidings. The king had a male heir to the throne. Or great things, the war is over. Good news, yay. You know, the famine has been lifted or has been stopped, and we have finally gotten a hold on everything in this country. Those were good news. But Jesus says, evangelio, the good news, I got to share with you what the good news is. That was his intent. But before we can know what the good news is, we need to know what the bad news is. Here's the bad news. The bad news is that God is good. You might say, that's the bad news. (laughs) God is good. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. And he is a good God. Because he is good, the Bible tells us that we're not that we're not good, that, that we are not that person that we tend to think we are. We are not good. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who seeks after God. You know, about 10 years ago, I was, I was preaching through the book of, uh, I think it was Luke. Maybe, yeah, I think it was the book of Luke, right at the beginning. Somehow this verse came up in Romans chapter 3, and something happened in my mind. We were what was called a seeker-sensitive church. And a seeker-sensitive church is out there looking for people that are seeking God. And we're trying to do everything we can within our church to make it pleasant for people to come and hear the message. I used to call it the gospel. And we had, you know, five ways on how to raise your, your children, uh, four steps in taking hold of your finances, and, and, you know, what to do when you're depressed, and, you know, just on and being the better you, the best you that you can be, and so on and so forth. And, and you know, people loved it. It was good. And then when I came up to this portion, you know, all of us have sinned. None of us seek God. And I stopped. I go, wait a minute. But isn't that our philosophy of our ministry? We're looking for people that are seeking God. And the Bible says there's no one seeking God. It had a major paradigm shift in my mind. And in my theology, and in my thinking, I started thinking, okay, now how is this put together? Well, beloved, that's the watering down of the gospel. That was it. Nobody's searching after God. What people are searching for are the benefits of God. They want peace. They want relief from guilt. They want relief from shame. They desire the benefits of God. But don't tell me that I got to go to church and do all this other stuff. I don't want that stuff. The Bible specifically states that we are all destined to go to hell. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Because God is such a good God, he cannot look on sin. Sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be dealt with in my life and in your life. And the only way that I can give sin and uh, take care of sin in the Old Testament was to offer a sacrifice, to follow the commandments, to make sure that my life was perfect, but my life couldn't be perfect. And the Ten Commandments, the rules of God, weren't meant to be followed, but a standard. This is what you measure yourself with. You want to measure yourself with something? Here it is, the commandments of God. And do the best that you can to keep them, and you live by faith, the way Abraham lived, by faith. Knowing that you are not able to keep all the commands. Knowing that you do need a God to save you. Knowing that your heart and your life is a heart of stone. You hear that expression many times. The Bible, the people say, you know, follow your heart. Well, the Bible says that your heart is deceitful and wicked beyond cure. The Bible says that you are, every one of us are broken individuals, fallen individuals, and we are all destined for hell. Total separation from God. That's the bad news. That my sin, no matter how much I try to work for it, I could never repay what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's the bad news. That man is sinful. And God hates sin. You know, there's this idea, this universal idea, that people, when they die, everybody goes to heaven. I've done a lot of funerals, and every funeral, it doesn't matter who that person is, and I've done a lot of funerals, every funeral, that person is in heaven now. Riding his motorcycle up there with God, telling God what to do. Painting his fence, if he was a painter. You know, doing whatever it takes, you know, just to make sure that, you know, just to keep, earn his keep. Everybody ends up in heaven. Like, all you have to do is just die. And that's the theology of universalism. Everybody goes to heaven. And we know that that's not true. Not what the Bible teaches. And so there needs to be something, a propitiation, a satisfaction, a a satisfying the debt that I owe. Something has to take place. And that's where the good news comes in. And the good news can probably be summarized best in 1 Corinthians 15. I had it in your outlines, but turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5. You know, I like the sound of pages turning. There you go. <laughs> I'm going to stop giving out outlines. <laughs> I w- it was suggested sometime a while. First <laughs> Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5. He says, oh, you know, maybe it'd be good if I turn there too, right? <laughs> okay. Now, Paul says, after he's already talked to them about the spiritual gifts and the tongues and the worship and orderly worship and what needs to happen. You know, there's this argument that there is no resurrection, and there's this argument that there is a resurrection, there's not a resurrection. And he says, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Let me just clarify that a little bit. In the gospel by which you are being saved. There's three aspects to salvation. I'm just briefly going to touch this. But there's that salvation past, regeneration. I've been regenerated, reborn, remade, brand new. Uh, All those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Regenerated, that's the salvation past. Salvation present is sanctification. The process that God has taken me through to sanctify my body, to purify, to cleanse me. And sanctification is what each and every believer needs to be in the business of doing. 
Pursuing God, pursuing God's holiness, pursuing the, the, the pleasing of God and doing what we can to, to get closer and closer to God. Does your life reflect that? Or does your life reflect the world? Does your life reflect the, the, the desire to know God and to get closer to God and to, to live by God and everything that you say and do, heart, mind, soul? That's sanctification, salvation present. And then there's salvation future, which is glorification. The glorification when we finally come to that point where we are glorified like Jesus Christ. And so Paul is talking about the salvation that you are being saved right now. Not that you have to continue working for your salvation uh, or work to be saved, but you're working it through. Paul says, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he tells the people in Philippi. And he doesn't say this to work for it. Working out your salvation is kind of like what a farmer does when he works out the land. Not to get more land, but that it produces fruit. Working out your salvation is like you working out at the gym. You know, to, to get not another body or more bodies, but to get the one body that you have in the shape. Paul says, work out, the Bible says to work out your salvation, this salvation in which you are being saved, the gospel that they received, and, and, and verse 2, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And he goes on to say, then he appeared to more, and he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. Some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus Christ didn't resurrect. He didn't rise. And I can tell you, 500 people saw him. I saw him. Peter saw him. The disciples saw him. We saw He resurrected. And so if he didn't resurrect, we have no hope. Why are we even here if there is no resurrection? But the key there is Christ died for our sins. Every time they preached the gospel, this is what they preached. Christ was crucified. Christ was murdered. You murdered the Son of God. You put him to death. You killed him. And as the people are hearing this message, their hearts are cut, and they respond, what do we do? And Peter says, repent. Be born again. Have the Spirit regenerate you. Christ died for our sins. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The bad news is, is that sin has to be paid. And there's no two ways about that, beloved. Sin has to be taken care of. Either he's going to take it out on you, or he's going to take it out on a substitutionary atonement. And that substitutionary atonement is what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. He substituted. He atoned. He substituted my body for his body. And he took on my sin. And he took on my punishment. And he atoned for it. He paid for it. He, he gave everything that he had so that I could have everything that he has. He took away my sin and he clothed me with righteousness. 503 years ago, Martin Luther went to the church in Wittenberg and nailed the thesis, 95 thesis on the door. And the whole purpose of that was to say, look, you, you can't be justified by works. You, you can't, justification isn't by works. The, nobody can give justification. The, the, the papal, the priest, the church, nobody can give. We have to get back to what the word of God says. 
Luther was never, had never intended to start another religion or a church or anything. What he was trying to do was to reform the church. He wasn't protesting against the church. He was protesting against its practices. As a matter of fact, there were two other people that, that Luther was friends with that they, they burned at the stake because they were saying, the Bible says that you're justified by faith and not by works. Heretics, they burned them, shut them up. We have to get back to the Word of God. The Word of God says that we're justified by faith, not by works. And, and the cross is offensive because it shows my sin. It's a stumbling block, but it's salvation to us. Jesus died for my sin, and he took my place on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. There's a big debate on the tree. Cross was it a tra- cross? Was it a tree? What was it? It was wood. You know, and honestly, I, I can't tell you. Was that an actual cross? Or was it a T? Or was it an X? All we have from biblical accounts is that he was crucified. Historical accounts, like for instance, the Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson did, gives us an accurate picture of what took place. But we don't know what type of cross it was or what type of tree or lumber, but people were hung on display to not die, but to suffer for whatever wrong they did against Rome. And Jesus Christ wasn't the only person that was crucified. You know, there was two other people. When Jesus was about 15 years old, there were 2,000 Jews that revolted and were captured and were crucified throughout the city in one day. 2,000. So crucifixion was an ongoing thing. They didn't have to explain to us how it took place. We've lost a lot of the original thought of the writers. And back then, they just said, they crucified. Oh, my God, I know what that meant. And they flogged them. Oh, man, they, they did what? Yeah. And so the flogging and the crucifixion are, were common staples at that time. And, and they knew exactly what was going on when he said it. So to argue about the type of cross or tree or whatever is is irrelevant. Jesus Christ died for your sin. And it was never meant to be an ornament, piece of jewelry. And he took your place. He took your place. He bore our sins. And it was so devastating that God himself was looking down and pouring out his wrath. And it took all day for that to happen from sunup to the time they crucified him to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And God was just pouring out the wrath of your sin, my sin, the world's sin. Just pouring it out. Now finally, Jesus Christ couldn't take it anymore. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was such a, a traumatic event that the universe responded. In such a way that the sun was darkened, the earth shook, dead people came out of the tombs and were walking around. It, it, it was such a, a, an event that it had cataclysmic events that, that it, it just shook the world at its foundation. Just for you, beloved. Just for me. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins. He was murdered. He was executed. He was hit mercilessly by the son with a piece of lumber, as in the prodigal son, possible ending. Well, it is a true ending, to be honest with you. He died for our sins. He was buried. And, and, and that has a huge significance. you got to understand that the, being buried is 
finalized. After three days, the spirit is gone. Remember Lazarus? Lazarus was in the tomb three days. And they, he says, open the tomb. He says, I don't think that's a good idea, Jesus. He probably, he stinketh by now. You know, it's, don't, don't want to open that tomb up right now. You, you, don't, you don't know what's going to come out. And, and he, Jesus opened it, believing. The thought was that the spirit is gone after three days. Resurrected from the, from the grave. Came to life. Conquered death. Was now, is now, the resurrection and the life. Conquered death. The gospel message has to include that, that the bad news, first of all, is I'm a sinner. The good news is that he died for my sin. And when he died and he was buried, he came back to life. On the third day, another part of this message, and that he appeared to his own. He appeared to his own. It's interesting that when the women went to the grave to roll, they were talking to themselves, who's going to roll away the, who's going to roll away the, the stone? And Jesus Christ resurrects, and he's no longer in there. And the first person that he shows himself to were, of course, the women. Now, you would think that maybe the first person he would show himself to is probably to the Pharisees. Look, (laughs) you know, I did it. I told you I did it. Or maybe to the, the president or the governor. Look, I'm alive. It's interesting to note that he did not go to those of his enemies or those that knew him not. As a matter of fact, the, the, the soldiers at the grave, the, they were there, and they should have seen him, but they were knocked out. You ain't get to see nothing. You don't get to see the glorious return of Jesus Christ. You don't get that honor and that privilege. Jesus came to his own, to Peter, to the women, to the disciples. goes on to say that, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, that he showed himself to 500 that were gathered. And then finally, last of all, meaning this is it. No other person gets to see Jesus Christ in the flesh except for Paul, the least of the apostles, he says. This is key because you have to understand that he appears to his own. He's raised from the dead and offers salvation to his own, not to the whole world. Everybody doesn't get saved. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is it that we've had so many people come through here and some people say, eh, those aren't his own. Why is it that a lot of people come through here and receive the gospel message and proclaim Jesus Christ in their life and are striving to grow closer to him and move on and continue with other ministries? Those are his own. The gospel message, that's it, folks. See, the gospel message is in the Bible, but not everything in the Bible is the gospel message. A lot of it points to it, but that is the central core of the message. And while we try to do everything else around the church and everything else within the church, that does not save people. See, this is why I said at the beginning, Satan wants to distract from the gospel message. Anything that he can do to distract and take away from that charismatic core. That you're a sinner. Jesus Christ died for you. He substituted. He gave his life for you. He resurrected and he appeared to his own. Now it's just a matter of growing closer to him, pleasing him, searching him. We're going to start a Bible study here in a couple of weeks. Pleasing God. We just went through... uh, we just went through a couple of Bible studies. The last one we just went through was uh, Chosen by God. And then the other one before that was, uh, do you remember the name of that? I forgot already. But anyway, 
The holiness of God. The holiness of God chosen by God, pleasing God. And it's a call to sanctification. It's a call to holiness. There is no call within the church to get away from your sin. There is no call for holiness. There is no call for people to, to stop your sin in your sin and, and serve and strive after pleasing what God, who God is. It's not a very popular message. It really isn't. Because as a matter of fact, it, it becomes hate speech. It becomes that message that most people don't want to be a part of. You know, I'm, I'm good. Beloved, it's coming. It's coming faster than you think. You know, as long as the riots were in L.A. or in Oregon or, you know, other places, I mean, they're here. Downtown San Bernardino now. I don't know how long that's going to last. If Yeah, I just know it just started yesterday. It's here. The persecution, it's here. It's getting heavier and heavier. It's here. Churches were commanded to stand down. It's here, beloved. Where are you going to stand? What is your stand? Where are you going to go? Are you going to honor the Father? Are you going to honor the Son? Because Jesus Christ himself said, you honor the Son, I will honor you in the presence of my Father. But if you don't, then I won't. You see, beloved, his own, his own know what the consequences are. To follow Christ, to pick up your cross daily, and to deny yourself. There is no self-denial that, that, that being taught in many places. Self-denial has to happen. And as we go through the, as we go through the word, the challenge is put out there. And, and, and in all honesty, the church is the place where you should hear that. And I encourage you to get into your word and read what the word of God says. What did Paul do? How did he do it? And why did he do it? As Paul goes through this portion of scripture, we'll come to find out that as he's talking to these uh, about these false apostles, he says in verse five, indeed. I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. You can put that in air quotes, super apostles, Paul is saying. These guys think that they're super apostles? Okay, even if I am unskilled in speaking, which we talked about last week, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Paul says, I've tried to make this as plain as possible. Here is what we need to do. And here is, as a church, what we as well need to do. In the, verse, in the rest of this verse, we will talk about the humbling of oneself. <clears throat> we talk about that again like we did last week. And, and how it is that Paul himself sets an example of examples that we need to, to follow as well. But right now, more than anything else, the gospel of Jesus Christ is knowing that he died for you because, well, first of all, you couldn't pay that sin. That sin that I have, that sin that was placed upon me because of what Adam and Eve did, that sin that I have because of the disobedience that I followed through, that sin of disobedience of not wanting to worship God and know God needs to be paid. And I thank God that he sent Jesus Christ to die in my place. Let me ask you to stand. Jesus is the answer to our dilemma in this world, in this country, in our government. And the more that we push him out, the worse it gets. The hardening of the hearts, as we've been seeing, 
Is God just removing his favor and letting man do what he does? A sinful man. No one is righteous. There's no one good. None of us. We're all depraved, left to our own good. When God removes his favor, more and more of myself comes out. I seek the favor of God, not for the blessings or not for the things that he can give give me, but for the strength and the endurance to come to know him because I do not want to offend a holy God. And every time I do, I ask for forgiveness. And every time that we do, we come together and we ask for forgiveness. And as we grow together, we'll come to know how to do this together on on a regular basis. Father in heaven, we want to thank you again for giving us your word. Thank you, Lord, for the proclamation of your gospel. And I pray that we are able to do so even more so. Give us the encouragement, the leadership, the desire that only comes from you. We thank you, Father, for your direction. And as we lift up those that are around us and and with us right now, we pray, Lord, that you just continue to minister to each one. Our city, our state, our country, this world has gone in a tailspin. And we're seeing it now being unfolded as the elections come forward, as this pandemic has frightened many people. And we pray for intervention, Lord, through your church, people that are willing to stand out and proclaim who you are and what you've done. We thank you, God, for leading us in all things. So, Father, we just pray that you dismiss us now from this place, but never from your presence, and that you keep us safe, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everybody says, Amen. Amen. And amen. Let me, um, whoops, dismiss us in this manner. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you so much. Thank you.